0: Good morning. It's good to see you. My name is Luke. If I haven't met you, I look forward to meeting you maybe a little bit later on after the service. But I'm the teaching pastor at Legacy, and I am excited to start a new series with you today. Um, So if you have a Bible or an app that you use, go ahead and turn to Mark 2. We're going to start it in Mark. It's a fun passage. Mark 2. If you don't have one, we give Bibles away uh, on the table out there for free. You want a nice leather one, just check the Lost and Found. There's a bunch in there. <laughs> just erase the name in the beginning of it. Um, if you uh, don't know about this phenomenon I'm about to describe, it's, it's not, there's nothing wrong with it, but there is this thing called missional drift that happens with believers, but it also happens with churches too as a whole. Missional drift occurs whenever people kind of veer away from God's call on us as believers to be intentional with His gospel in the city, and in the culture, okay? Um, It's not always the church's fault when this happens. Sometimes churches grow at such a pace where the the leadership has to get real involved with building up structure to catch up with the growth because it's also on the leadership to take care of the people that it has already caught, baptized, um, just added to their number basically. So you have things like, I don't know, children's ministry, right? That didn't come out of thin air. Um, Trailers, insurance, bookkeeping, church planting residencies. These things just kind of come out of nowhere. And by the time all the dust settles, you look around and you realize we have veered out of our lane a little bit. Um, Legacy Church, we have drifted a little bit. That's my fault, by the way. Um, It's part of the leadership's job to keep the culture of a church in the right lane and keep us from drifting, But as I look up, as we kind of hit the rumble strips on the outside of the lane before we hit the shoulder, I've looked up and I've realized that we've kind of veered from what made us a very distinctive people in the beginning. We're not unhealthy. We've just drifted away from the dock a little bit. And my intent as a pastor is to recapture what made us distinctive in the original days. This is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful church now. But God called us to come here and do something very specific. And so as a leader, one of your leaders, one of our jobs is to make sure that the culture of this church stays not to where we are just good and healthy as a community, but we are also good and healthy as missionaries to the city. Um, Because to be honest with you, Knoxville doesn't really need just another church that does a good job with this. There's over 750 other of those going on right now, right? They do a really good job of being missional to the city by making this look good and not being offensive to people with this, right? Um, but but what Knoxville really needs is a church that is intentional and active, understanding that people aren't going to come here, we have to extend the gospel outwards, which means us just being normal people. We're just normal in the normal rhythms of the city, Um, We're normal around normal people, doing normal things on a normal daily basis, yet we have great gospel intentionality even within our normalcy. That's what it means to be missional. The thing is, is it's difficult to be missional because people are different from you. The people that God has called us to reach as a church, they're different from you, aren't they? I mean, they're not here for one thing, different values, but they're different Being different is something we understand we're different from each other. You're very different, aren't you? If you walked in today, let me just tell you, you are very different. The gospel speaks to this, but what we've done is we've taken the term different, we've made it a little bit of a slur. That family is a little different, right? She's an artist. She's a little bit different. We're different. Some of you are different from the people around you and you're hard to deal with. You're hard for the people around you to even understand. You're hard to contend with, hard to walk along with in life. We're all very different, and you know who you are. You walk into a room, doesn't matter what the room is, and you walk in feeling different. Like people might breathe the same air as you, but they're not the same as you, and they all know that you are different. And some of you are so aware and cognizant of your difference from everyone else lost saved otherwise, that it's a problem for you. Some of you, it's your sin, a pervasive sin that has made you feel different, some behavior, something that has followed you year after year after year. And even if you know in your mind that other people don't even know about that sin or that struggle, you think that they're focused on it when you walk in the room, like a big scarlet letter on your chest. For some of you, you believe that your struggle with the sin is special and unique, and it makes you very, very... Different. And it it might not even be a sin. It might just be something that's happened to you. It might just be the way you are. It might be your skin color. It might be your past. It might be your tax bracket. It might be something that causes you to look around in the room that you've just walked in and say, man, I'm just, I'm different. But the good news for us is that the gospel works with difference. Because you are different even from the person sitting right next to you. But God is much more different than us and God has crossed a gulf, a larger gulf of difference to cover that distance and make us close, to bring us in as family. So as different as you are from the person next to you, it pales in comparison with the gulf that was between you and the God who loved you dearly, who closed that gap for you. So we have a gospel that helped us from being different to being kindred with a royal family in God, right? Right? And then all of a sudden, the same gospel collects us all together, where we're very different people. I mean, some of you are doing life with folks in your comm group or just walking alongside folks, that you have more differences than you do similarities. And the gospel makes that possible, doesn't it? And then the gospel calls us to extend our love to, this, to, to a city, a culture that is incredibly different, wildly different than we are. So in this series, what I'd like to do is look at how we are different what the gospel says to that and what we're going to do each week as we go through this series is take a chunk of society, take a chunk of the church and address it. Address how the gospel deals with it specifically and how we change and walk through it. Address how we work with others as they struggle with it in community and what it makes us do is we're in the city living normal lives with normal people but having great intentionality. So today I'd like to just kick it off by talking about those of you who are bleeders the needy. I'm one of you, by the way. This sermon was super easy to put together because I'm one of you. I'm in your rank. But those who are in chronic need, pervasive, some wounds heal fast and some wounds just keep on bleeding. You know, there's actually two different categories of need and one of them is it's really quick. I got a flat tire. I need it to be fixed. I just lost my job. I, I need another job real quick. These, these are acute needs. But sometimes we have chronic ones, don't we? And they linger and they follow us. Things like you can't make babies. Things like you've been unemployed for months now. Things like you cannot kick that depression. Cannot get a loan. Cannot get a husband. Cannot get a wife. Whatever it is. It's gone on and on and on. And some of you have lived in this state of need for so long that you can't remember what it feels like to live a life where you weren't asking God for a solution to your big bleeding problem. You actually can resonate a little bit with King David as he says, my tears are my food. My tears are my food during the day. My tears are my food during the night. And all the onlookers mock me as they look on and say, where is your God now? We know what that feels like, all the bleeders of the world. Where is our God, by the way? Because it's easy to feel alone, isn't it? Isolated, abandoned, dropped, powerless. It's easy to feel powerless. We've lost all control of the variables in our life and we do not know what to do. It's easy for us to feel spiteful against God, hateful because we think he hates us. Hopelessness is something that comes in our hearts because we feel like there's no way to change and there's nothing promised us. You know, and out of these deep, feelings that we would never say out loud comes a lie that sits on the throne of our hearts the lie sounds a little bit like this you aren't great god you're not and you're definitely not in control (laughs) because you have certainly dropped me you've left me you've abandoned me and you've left me for dead tim chester says that behind every sin is a lie Behind every sin against God is a lie and an accusation against God. These are things that would not come rolling right out of our mouth, but this is what we believe, and it is definitely something that runs as a deep current through our lives. We get angry at God because we think he's angry at us. Now, we know on paper God is great, and we know we're not supposed to hate God or be spiteful against God, yet we are. So we become a little bit of a walking contradiction to ourselves. Feeling a way we kind of know we're not supposed to feel. Worship becomes difficult because we're bleeding so bad. We're needing something. He's not delivering on so bad. Worship becomes difficult. We feel like we could worship really well if God would just give us the solution, but He hasn't done it. So our worship becomes very circumstantial. We also require other people to pay really close attention to our bleeding and our chronic need because we don't feel God sees it. We feel like, because God is not paying attention, we require everybody else to pay attention in living color. See my problem, see my hole, see what I'm struggling with. And over time, what this evolves into is a crisis becoming an identity for us. Now, we hate the crisis, but we like the identity it gives us. And we're a little sad sometimes when the crisis goes away because so does our identity. We have to come up with a new one. It's a struggle for people, it's a struggle. This is why some people that you know that are bleeding and some of you who are bleeding do this, you would think that your need, your chronic need was your last name because it comes so quick after you saying your first name in an introduction. It's difficult for a conversation to go by without your need and the bleeding wound that you have becoming such a big part of it, right? Some of you already have faces in your mind and some of you are looking in the mirror And I know what this feels like, because like I said, I'm a bleeder. And I'll tell you, as a bleeder, those who do bleed all over the place, they think they're special. We think we're unique. Our our circumstances, different. The one thing that bleeders and victims hate is to feel like they're average. Kryptonite to them is someone telling them, oh, no, 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 this is typical. I know a guy that struggled with this once. No, 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 you didn't. Mine is special. This is a special need. I bet he didn't struggle as bad as this. We don't like to know that we are average, but we are. I want to look at a passage that's really going to help us, I think, today Mark 2. It's going to help us see what the gospel says to those who bleed and those who walk alongside bleeders, okay? Mark 2, this is the passage that's going to help us see Christ more clearly. It starts off like this in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, he being Jesus, by the way, my bad, So when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And as he was preaching the word to them, they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now I know you've all heard this story, but keep following along, okay? And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. You read that correctly. That's awkward, right? And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Okay, pause. We're going to pause the story right there. Most scholars believe that this was Peter's house because of some other things that were said at the beginning of Mark, okay? Um, whether it is or not, I don't even care. It doesn't really matter, but I hope it was Peter's house because that guy, is in a, he's, a, he's a responsive, expressive guy, and I would have loved to have seen the look on his face when someone jackhammers a six-foot-by-four-foot hole and his roof. I mean, catch this. See what's going on. This really happens. Back then, and everyone would have seen it, too, because back then, these homes were mostly just one-room homes with one door. One entrance, one exit, one big room, right? Now, this was packed so thick, and a lot of them were scribes and haters, by the way. That's another sermon altogether. This room was filled with people that were just looking to catch Jesus and something that he said, right? So full, they couldn't even get to the door, they couldn't even get to the door. So what they do is they used what was common on homes at the time, which is an external staircase that goes up from the ground to the top of the structure. Now, those roofs were weight-bearing, right? So they would have tiles, earth, straw, uh, all thatch. It would all be kind of put together to where it would dispel rain, but it could bear some weight. These guys do the thing of start pulling... They're pulling up tiles. I mean, you got to... Put yourself there. Pretend you're one of the scribes. You got your notes out. You're ready for Jesus to say something that's going to really make you mad, right? You're just, you're itching to write something down. Your your Evernote's just, it's glowing back in your face. You're ready to bang something in. Just catch him. And all of a sudden, a shaft of light comes out of nowhere. Why? Because someone's ripping the roof up. Straight up, they're pulling tiles off. There's dirt falling. There's straw kind of starting to fall. And they lay a guy, they're putting a guy down through this roof. Now, it wasn't on a couch or on a, on a bed. Back then, a mat was just like a, a, a stuffed or oversized beach towel. So there had to be some cooperation from inside the house to keep that from being a viral video, you know, of someone trying to lower down a body with no one there to catch it. Some people had to cooperate and grab the body and bring it down. So now you've got great involvement and participation, and notice Jesus isn't teaching anymore. It broke up his sermon. Very rude of them, right? This is a pretty incredible scene when you get to it. And who is lower down but a paralytic? Now, these guys were different. They had a different set of circumstances, different from like a bleeding woman or a guy with a shriveled hand. You know, the woman in the Bible that bled for 14 years, she could still function in society to a certain extent. Not, not as well as other women, but to a certain extent. The guy with a shriveled hand, he was able to a certain extent cooperate and participate in society. This guy is plastered to a mat. Not so for him. Every day was his crisis. Every day paralyzed depending on others. It would have been easy for this guy to have felt forgotten, dropped, abandoned. It would have been easy for this guy. It would have been easy for this guy to make 32 Facebook posts every day on the fact that they are still plastered to their mat Right, hoping that you click like. Right, it'd been easy for this guy to have struggled and maybe started every sentence or every thought with, "Well, if I could just get out of this bed, then I wouldn't be in this jam. If I could just get past this bleeding, I would be fine." Some of you are here. Some of you are here, trying to be intoxicated with a god you're bitter with. It's a big cosmic elephant in the room every time you do something like come to church, open the Bible try to pray trying to worship a God you don't think is all that great and then you've got these guys that are lowering him these pallbearers of sorts that are carrying this mat these are scholars believe some and I'm inclined to agree with them are probably some of the guys that helped minister to this guy some of the caretakers because he would have needed them right Some of you have been this person, the mat carrier, and have walked alongside those in community that have been bleeding all over the place. And that's difficult, isn't it? It's difficult, always feeling inadequate, always feeling like you don't know the right thing to say. Well, I prayed a certain way this week. Next week, I'm gonna have to pray a different way. I used this passage yesterday, so I can't use it today. I have to come with something fresh. I have to come with something new. I have to fix their need. It's difficult being one of the carriers of the mat, always feeling inadequate. Let's go ahead and pick it up in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith and said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning or reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they had questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus does something really cool right here, and it's not healing this guy. Jesus doesn't just heal his palsied body. He heals his dead soul. There's a dual healing going here. And Jesus isn't doing this to stick it to the scribes. He's not bowing his chest out right now because they're doubting him. That's not what's going on. He is basically showing them that the message he brings is valid and who he is is true. And he was verifying something they can't see by showing them something that they could see. That's what is going on here, and what he says to this guy is rise something that he was incapable of doing He couldn't rise that morning, and he couldn't rise the day before And we don't know if he was paralyzed because of an accident or from birth, but it had been a while Since he had been able to rise He would have needed to trust God He would have needed to hear something that challenged him and believe And then he tells him to do something really cool pick up your bed Pick up that thing that carried you in here and carry it out of here. That thing that carried you in here does not have mastery over you and it's not part of your identity anymore. You could carry it on out of here. And then he tells him to go. He gives him direction. gives him direction. Okay, I think what most people try to do when they are discouraged with their bleeding or walking along others who are bleeding, I think what a lot of people do is they take stories like this and they try to squeeze and extract any encouragement they can out of it for the person who is bleeding. But it doesn't always work because that person only ends up asking, well, then why then not me? That's what I come to. Well, I mean, God, seriously, how many roofs do I have to jackhammer through? I've done that a few times. How many times do I need to throw myself at your feet? My friends are all praying for me to be healed. They have faith. I have faith. It's been more than 14 years. It might be 30. How many times have I cried out and fasted and journaled and believed and believed and believed? How often have I done this? It's easy for us to do this, but the miraculous healing in this passage, it's not physical. I mean, that's a miracle of its sort, but the ultimate healing that Jesus points to in this, that, that is, that's the attention grabber. All of healings point to this one. Know this. Whenever you read the Bible or you see someone healed of something miraculously it just points to an ultimate healing. A shriveled hand extended out to where it is whole again. A woman stops bleeding. All of this shows the fact that we were with need. We were bleeding. We were, we were palsied. We were unable to get up. We were unable to even live. He even raised people from the dead. And what does that do? Those are just echoes. Those are just shadows. They're signs that point to an ultimate healing. And that is what Jesus is doing here. Listen, bleeders, those of you who love and walk alongside bleeders, you will not grow if you become so fascinated with your temporal healing that you have ignored and forgotten the ultimate one. Hear me, you won't grow. You won't grow. So in this series, as this series goes on, I'd like to burn a concept in your minds It's not something that's original to me. I've gotten it from a book. Um, We'll we'll probably have the book on the the table outside before long, and we're going to try to get some cards out there on the chairs to make this easier for you to remember. Um, But it's a concept called the four Gs. Some of you have heard it. You've been through a training on it or you've seen it online. The four Gs are basically a tool that um, some of our leaders use. I use it all the time. And when I do find myself consistently using it, it does help. It helps me see where I'm lying and calling God a liar. And it helps me see where I'm not believing the truth. So um, the four G's would be God is great, so we need not be in control. God is good, so we need not turn elsewhere. God is gracious, so we need not try to prove ourselves. God is glorious, so we need not fear man. Now we'll print that out and we'll give it to you, but I'd like to use one of those as an example and walk you through it and show how it might be able to be helpful for you if you're a bleeder, or help someone who is a bleeder, and it is, God is great, so we don't have to be in control. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. Great meaning majestic. Great meaning overwhelming. Great meaning being ahead of us. Great meaning never being intimidated. Never being ambushed. Never being confused. But always always being in control see God is great and he is always in control the woman that bled for 14 years the whole time God was great and he was always in control the man that was born blind God was great and he was in control there was one day where a man was born with a shriveled hand and God was great he was always in control this guy on a mat whatever happened to him When it happened, God was great. He was always in control. When the Israelites were pinned against the Red Sea, wondering, do we drown or do we get slaughtered by the Egyptians? God was great in that moment. He was definitely in control. When Sarah was struggling with giving birth in her old age, God was great and he was in control. When Jesus was thrown up on the cross and abused by mankind, God was great and he was in control. And we see that because a tomb was left empty, a grave was vacant to prove that God is great and He is in control. And Jesus will come back on a white horse proving once again that God is great and He is always in control. God is in control. He's always been in control. And His level of control expresses His goodness to you. It expresses His goodness to you. It's for your good. That he is always in control. It shows us how great he is. This is the gospel for the bleeders right here. Jesus shed his level of control so that we would see and be a part of God's. Jesus gave up his divine power and his divine control to show and display God's total control over mankind's dilemma. He did this. He did it for us. God allowed things. You think your bleeding is bad. God allowed what happened to Jesus to happen in slow motion. He allowed it to get out of control when mankind was most out of control to show that he was always in control. And what does this show us? God is great. God is great. But we forget this. We forget it so fast. We have amnesia, gospel amnesia, and we say, but God, you're not in control. But you're not, and you're definitely not good, because look at what I'm struggling with. You see, the lie in our head tells us that our our problem is not solved, then God's not good. He's not good. He's definitely not in control. The lie in our head tells us that the bleeding will continue, and it will always be our identity, right? So Jesus, he heals this guy, not because he was feeling generous at the moment, but because he was showing the gospel to be true, and he was pointing to an ultimate healing. So God is great. We don't have to be in control. We worship one who is. So what do we do as bleeders then? We change. We grow. And it might not mean your bleeding stopping. We just trust in God. Listen, it's not that complicated. We turn, we repent, and we believe. There's really no hip way to say it, to make it stick anymore. There's no graphic we can put with this to translate it any deeper. We turn and we trust. We turn from the lie that we threw at God's face and we trust the truth that He has given us. We turn away from lying and accusing and we trust and we confess. We see this in the Bible. We see it in Romans 10. You're all familiar with this passage if you've been in church for even longer than a year and it says this, the word is near you. Listen, the word is near you in your mouth And in your heart. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. But Luke, that means salvation, right? It does. The context of this is salvation. But I'll be frank with you, nothing really changes. I mean, our, our mode, our mechanics don't really change. We're sojourners that kind of The way we enter the kingdom is kind of our language and our body language as we go through life. We're always going to be turning and trusting. That doesn't stop once you become a Christian. Always turning from something towards something. Always repenting for something and believing in another. This is who we are. It brought us new life once and it continues to bring us new life. So let me tell you, if you're bleeding in the house, of course God sees you. Of course God sees you. He sees the mat that you're plastered to. He sees that mat, and he knows how long you've been there. He sees your shriveled hand. He he observes it. He's mindful of it. He knows how long you've bled and how expensive it's been for you. He knows this. Of course he sees it. He's a majestic God. He didn't just observe your pain, he observed his own pain as His Son was up on the cross. He knows and is acquainted with grief. He is acquainted with great grief. And yet, as mankind was spiraling out of control, He is in control. So my question to you is can you worship God before you get off the mat? Can you worship God before He brings a solution? Regardless, regardless, of whether he brings a solution. Can you worship on the mat with your afflictions? Is God enough? Is God enough? Can you see God in control even when you're way out of control? When you can't get your arms around what is going on? Now, some of you are going to say, Luke, I can't get there. I just can't get there. Then, friend, let me tell you, what you're doing is, is you are believing a lie. You're believing a lie you're throwing it up in front of God that has become your new theology and a bigger problem is is you're not even really worshiping God when you do worship you're worshiping a solution you're worshiping a solution to come and fix your bleeding and that's called idolatry that's called idolatry some of you say Luke I think I can on a good day worship on on the mat I think I can do that And I know what that's like. There are bad days and there are good days. And on a good day, I think I could do that. I think I could be in the middle of my bleeding and give it up to God because He's great. Let me tell you what happens whenever we are doing this. It does not mean that God will get rid of your bleeding. You might not ever get off that mat, right? It might not happen. But what God will do is He will take your suffering and He will put it in perspective to a different suffering. He will take your suffering and show you what it looks like in light of a different suffering, an ultimate suffering. And what it does is it reshuffles the deck a little bit. It doesn't make you ignore the pain and the bleeding you're going through. You just become hyper-observant to a different bleeding, a bleeding that was for you. It changes the perspective. Jesus never goes around in the New Testament making little of people's injuries and their struggles. He never does that. He just makes a big deal of a different struggle. right? Listen, just to shift gears a little bit because I gotta drive this to a finish. We, some of you might or might not be on the mat bleeding all over the place. Some of you might be walking alongside someone who is and you're carrying the mat. And it's a struggle, isn't it? Isn't it hard? It makes the passage jump off the screen for me because if all it took was pulling up some ceiling tiles and dropping this bad boy down in there to get that fixed, I'd do it. Because people who are bleeding all over the place, that creates tension in the relationship, doesn't it? It makes it hard. It can make it frustrating. So here's a couple pointers just to bring some application as much as I can. Take them to the gospel. Stories like this are good. Showing what Jesus has done for those who are constantly in chronic need, that's good. But you've got to land in the gospel. You have to show them what God has done through an ultimate suffering and an ultimate healing. You have to show them that. It's, It's super important. Remind them that God is in control, that He is great. Remind them over. But Luke, I've already told them the gospel. Tell it again. Tell it again and again and again. And if you have to use a passage to bring light to it, to illustrate it, to flesh it out, do it. If you need to say it in different ways, say it in different ways. But remind them of what God has done. Remind them of who they are because of what God has done. And I will say this, be gentle. Be gentle with the bleeders. Be gentle because it's difficult for bleeding wounds to see that they have actually enjoyed and found refuge in it a little bit. It's hard for them to see that, so be careful. All right, be careful. Ask them questions. Questions like, what does your worship look like lately? What does it look like? Well, I haven't been worshiping God because I'm so tired from this thing, or all I can think about is this house in foreclosure, or all I can think about is I can't make babies right now, or all I can think about, whatever it is. Ask them, how does their worship look? And then ask them again. And then ask them if they're lying. But really get to the bottom of it. Ask them if they're enjoying God. Do you enjoy God right now? Do you enjoy Jesus? Has your crisis become your refuge? Ask that. Well, what do you mean? Well, I hear it come out of your mouth a lot. Like all the time. Right? Ask them. Do you get upset because people have forgotten about you? Maybe it's been a week since that person's gotten a call. Maybe it's been a month since anyone's asked you if, if you still are having a hard time uh, with some long-suffering that you've been struggling with? Do you get upset because you've required and you were only quenched by everyone's attention on you? These are questions you can ask. Listen, this <laughs> is hard stuff. What I'm, what I'm putting out there, it is hard. It's easier to work with workaholics than it is sickaholics, right? Or marriage problemaholics. Or unemployedaholics, right? It's, it's easier. This is difficult. I understand this. 1 Thessalonians 5 has been a big help to me. Because you'd think if I was such a big bleeder, it'd be easy for me to work with other bleeders, but not so. <laughs> 1 Thessalonians five fourteen, And we urge you, brothers, Paul says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. Be patient. Why? Because God was patient with you. And you were much more different from God than that person is from you. You think that guy's bleeding. You think that sister's just walking around in her chronic wound. (laughs) You were a mess. In fact, you were dead. You were so different from God. He's all life, and you were dead. You were petrified. You were different, and he was patient, and he is patient. Be patient, it says. 2 Corinthians, Paul shows us again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Catch that, any affliction. You don't have to have had a divorce to help somebody who's in a divorce. You don't have to have struggled with an addiction to help someone who's in an addiction, right? Why? Because you've been healed from something even deeper than all of that put together. You've been comforted. Comforted from death. You can comfort anybody. Anybody. With the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We are importers and exporters of comfort. That is who we are as Christians. My last little pointer for those of you who are holding the mat is you can't solve their problem. You can't be their Jesus. I know the temptation, too, to roll up the sleeves and really get to work and say that thing that changes it all for them. To help them flip the switch. I am there with you. As a pastor, I, I, it's, I'm, I'm always looking. How can I fix this? How can I move this to where they, they never struggle with this again? You can't do it. You can't do it. You can't be there. Jesus. Lead them to Jesus. Take them to the one who fixed their ultimate problem and then pray that God fixes their immediate problem. But you've got to lead them elsewhere. Okay? You can't fix it. And then church. Legacy as we are on mission to Knoxville and the world, as we are on mission to the city and the culture who is very far from Christ, listen, we don't have... I mean, it's full of bleeding messes, right? The world is full of bloody wounds walking around. Everyone's stuck to a mat, right? You don't even have to convince the world that they're there, that they're a bleeding mess. You don't even have to convince them. They know it. Just show them why. Chaos has an origin. There was a birth to disorder. Show them why the struggle is there. Take them back. Show them the history of mankind. It's actually our fault. It happened in the garden. Their parents, 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 all the way down to Adam and Eve themselves cracked what was beautiful. We are the problem, and another came to fix it. You have to show them the origin of this thing that we call disorder and mess and death and i know what you will hear in return because i've heard it a million times luke if there is a god then i hate him listen if you've spent any time in the smoking sections of this city you've heard this if there is a god then i hate him because look what i'm dealing with look at my struggle (laughs) my my mess is not average if there is a God, I hate him. I don't want anything to do with him. What kind of God does this? What kind of God does this? It's a good question. What kind of God does do that? It's a good question. Good evangelism, the heralding of the gospel, the implanting and the extending of the gospel to those who need to hear it, it shows them. shows them that God understands their pain. He actually felt it more than they do. If you could quantify all the pain expressed and felt in mankind and put it all in a big pot, it would still just be but a shade and a shadow of what God himself felt on the cross. God is well acquainted with sorrow and pain. And you know why he did that? To bring you close. To forgive your sins. That's why he did it. God knows pain. This is what some people call retelling the gospel with people built into it. So whenever you hear that, retelling the story of God with their story built into it, that's a little bit of what that means. Show them. The reason you can't make babies. The reason there's disorder. The reason your finances are really upside down. The reason that foreclosure is there. Listen, you're not special. You've got to let the world know. And if you're in here and you are far from Christ, let me tell you, you're not special. God's not out to get you. It's systemic. It's everywhere. There's nothing unique. It's a real problem, but it's something that is common to mankind. Well, Luke, then why doesn't he fix it? He did. He did. That thing that defeats you, that thing that makes you struggle, that thing that breaks your heart when you wake up, He defeated it. He defeated it. It's not full yet. The kingdom is still coming, even though it's already here, but He defeated it. The sin that defeats you, He defeated. The death that haunts you, He beat. That thing that is all over you, He defeated it. He did fix it. He did solve it. The gospel for the city of Knoxville, The gospel for your friends at work, the gospel for the world, is not that God will probably heal your bleeding if you just worship Him hard enough, if you do the right things. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that God has had an ultimate healing for their benefit, for His glory and for your benefit. You might not ever get off that mat, but once you have tasted and seen what God has done, it will be put into perspective and you will worship and glorify from the mat. It's important for them to hear this. I need to finish. Verse 12. Verse 12. The last verse. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorifying God saying, we never saw anything like this. I love the Greek underneath the the language there. It means they were out of their minds. Their minds were just blown by what they saw. You know, the gospel is great enough and good enough that we should be a people that are blown out of our minds. Who has seen something like this? Who has seen something like this? No one. The gospel is just beautiful. I mean, we don't just worship a king that corrects our little chronic failures. Broken marriage here, unemployment there, depression here, addiction there. We were a God We worship a God that collects not those with failures, but failures themselves. We are chronic failures. And he collects us close as our father, as a kind, generous, and sweet father. Who has seen anything like this? Real quickly, this is what God is asking us to do. It's not anything different than he told the paralytic. He says, rise, take up your mat, and go rise. We need to trust. We need to do something that we couldn't do earlier. We need to trust. Turn away from the lie and the accusation that God is not great, that He is not good, He's not mindful, He's not in control, and trust that He is. I mean, He's proven it, hasn't He? (laughs) He's proven it. Just believe it. Trust. Then take up your mat. That thing that gave you identity, the thing that mastered us in the past, it masters us no longer, and it is no longer an identity for us. The next day, this guy did not show up to be the, the paralyzed dude on the mat. Probably left the mat at home at that point. Probably was running and dancing. He had a new identity. Not just one who was healed, but one who was loved by God. Some of us, we struggle with this. We want to hold on to that thing that mastered us. Right? And then go. Go live a life that reflects God's glory worshiping no matter what no matter what but how can you worship I mean your jobs falling apart in your marriage you know your wife got in an accident your finances came apart well what is there to worship why would you even do that because God is great God is great look what he has done for mankind look what he has done for me death has lost its sting on me I will celebrate Yes, this is tough, and yes, I'm going to continue to pray, but it doesn't tell me, this doesn't tell me whether God is great or not. His greatness is not circumstantial. Go ahead and stand. We're going to pray. And listen, if you've not been here very long, or this is new to you, we have the elements, what we call communion, on these tables in the back. If you're a Christian, we would invite you to go back there and take it with somebody if you could. If not, that's fine. But to take part of it. Now, what does it symbolize for us? It symbolizes an ultimate bloodletting. Not the one we experience chronically from day to day, but one who actually bled royal blood for us that we could walk with royal blood in us now. Okay? So it's spilt blood and it's a body cracked and broken. Right? One who really understood what chronic pain felt like did that for us. So we remember what God has done, and then it leads us to a better place. When where? God shows again that He was always in control. Always in control. The next time we have communion with Jesus right there before us, Jesus will be saying with a smile, it was all under control. It's all under control. He's such a good God. Let me pray over you. Father, we thank You so much for Your kindness to us and Your goodness to us that You spilled Your blood and an ultimate suffering in order to provoke an ultimate healing in us. God, I am a bleeder, speaking to bleeders, praying with bleeders in order to do community well and reach a city of bleeders. Help us change in the midst of our struggles. Help us walk and carry the mat of those who are struggling and help us see a city correctly who is deeply, deeply in struggle. Father, we thank you that you don't just minimize our struggles. You just reshape them in our eyes. I thank you, God, that you are observant, that you do see all. I thank you that you are always in control. You need not prove it anymore for me. If you never did another thing to show how in control you are, you have done enough. Because you left Grave's mouth empty. He is gone. He is alive enough for me let it be enough for us let us be able to repent and believe to turn and trust help us walk alongside those who are in deep pain deep pain it's all they could think about every thought if they could just get through with this if they could just get by that if this would just end help us be gospel fluent in such a way that they see repeatedly over and over and over again you're in control and you're great Even if we have to do it a thousand times, let us be gospel heralds a thousand times over. And help us see a city correctly, God. For those of us in this room and those of us who are not in this room yet, for those that we know and those that we are going to meet in this city and in this region, Father, help us. Help us show them. Help us be good gospelers. Help us show them where it is that sin came from, where it is their pain came from, why it is that they struggle. Help us show them where it all came from and one who came to stop it all. One who came to defeat and destroy what defeats and destroys us. God, it's a tall order. All that we're asking for, but it is not too tall for you. We thank you. We worship you. We worship you. On our mats, we worship you right now. Some of us in here are plastered to a mat right now. And we choose to worship you for you are great. For you are great, whether we never see the stoppage of our bleeding ever again. You are great. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.